and welcome to McLean's pop culture podcast, The Thrill, for the week of March 13th. On this week's show, the breakdown of Kimmy Schmidt. We look at the delightful Netflix TV series starring Ellie Kemper and explore what it says about the state of both binge-watched television and network TV. A CanCon attitude. The CBC's latest efforts to revitalize its brand with two buzzy TV shows is the perfect time to figure out why it's so hard to care about Canadian content. We'll also talk about the impact of the CRTC's announcement that it's going to relax the quotas of Canadian content that must be on the air. Is that bad news dressed up as good? And a perfectly cromulent life. We remember Sam Simon, who helped create The Simpsons, and consider his legacy on one of the most important pop culture touchstones of our time. I'm Adrian Lee, and I'm a digital editor who writes about arts and music. And I'm here with... I'm Julia Delorentis Johnson, and I'm the editorial assistant. And with Emma lounging on a beach vacation, we have a guest host who is over to my right. I'm Jamie Weinman. I'm a pop culture writer who hates everything without a laugh track. One week after it launched the third season of House of Cards, Netflix released another one of its hotly anticipated shows, this one a comedy. The unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is the classic tale of a girl in the big city, except that this girl, played by Ellie Kemper, is one of four women who have been kidnapped, stashed into a bunker by a religious zealot who has convinced them the world has ended. You got a secret. I am one of the Indiana Mole women. From the news. I spent 15 years in that bunker eating beans out of a Florida Marlins cap. I just want to be a normal person. I'm having candy for dinner. Scram, you stupid ho- series is a creation from the mad, mad mind of Tina Fey, she of Saturday Night Live and the fantastic NBC show 30 Rock, and it reminded me just how much I missed her voice on my TV screen. Uh, the three of us binged the crap out of the show this weekend, so I'll start with you, Jamie. What did you think of the show? I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, I thought that uh, it was uh, you know, a very entertaining fish-out-of-water comedy, obviously uh, very much in the style of 30 Rock, including Jane Krakowski, who was added to the show after the original pilot was made, mm-hmm. playing essentially the same part she played on 30 Rock. It has much of the same mix of uh, wisecracks and surreal comedy, including a, um, you know, uh, an episode that somehow winds up involving a, uh, a robot uh, for no particular reason, I thought, but robots are funny. Why not have uh, a robot? Yeah, exactly. They'll do anything that's funny. That's the basic uh, point of the show. And through it all, Ellie Kemper, um, with her playing the sort of wide-eyed, innocent, you know, char- charming person she played on The Office, manages to anchor it by reacting to the silliness as if it's normal. And I don't know yet if it's uh, going to hit the heights of 30 Rock at its best, but it's certainly is off to a very charming start. Mm -hmm. And it has uh, already been, I guess, uh, renewed, so to speak, for a second season. There will be a second season of it on Netflix. Uh, I mean, Julia, what did you think? I agree with Jamie. It was such a delight. And that's part of why I binge-watched it so intensely. I just wanted more. So it worked. Netflix, it worked. So I like the show, too. I I watched the whole thing in uh, in a couple days, as one does, I believe, with Netflix. Um, But, uh, yeah, and I really enjoyed the fact that it sort of was this, uh, it felt kind of initially like a successor to Parks and Recreation, which which ended pretty recently in in the fact that the show was extremely earnest and in a way that kind of 30 Rock never was. 30 Rock was this very cynical show at its core. Uh, Tina Fey, uh, an essentially cynical character who comes to learn to love and and, and that kind of thing, whereas uh, whereas Ellie Kemper uh, as Kimmy Schmidt sort of comes out of the bunker looking to love right away. Like, she's learning all these feelings, but she is this strong woman who uh, is trying to sort herself out. Um, There were 
problematic parts to me too, uh, and and th these have been addressed sort of online, and there will be problematic things wherever we go. But um, and some of that surprised me. I mean, Tina Fey is someone who suffers no fools. Uh, this is the person who sort of took on Bill Cosby before it was cool to take on Bill Cosby. She was the first in Thirty Rock to sort of allege uh, sexual assault, uh, which was pretty interesting uh, for her time. Um, and and there were things about the show that that did race stuff, but not necessarily in an interesting way. For instance, Jane Krakowski's character um, has a backstory that is kind of superfluous. And and as you say, Jamie, the the fact that it's superfluous is funny. They're just yeah. doing it for the sake of it. But um, she has a she basically is passing as an Aboriginal woman, uh, trying to you know infiltrate this rich white world. What did you guys think of of that storyline? It was silly, but. I'm, I'm sure it was, as as we say now, problematic, uh, but and I'm not sure that it was necessarily all that funny. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think that uh, it's not surprising that uh, someone like Tina Fey would dabble in humor that isn't necessarily kosher uh, because comedians do have a different perspective from, say, journalists. Uh, they're very, no matter how much they want to improve the world, they're also very sensitive about trying not to censor themselves and uh, not to risk throwing out what they consider a funny idea for the sake of, um, of sensitivity because I think they fear that if they do that, then they'll start uh, losing their edge and not be funny anymore. So mm -hmm. I think that I don't really want to comment on, you know, the propriety of these specific things because I think a lot depends on whether you find them funny or not. But I don't think I just saying it's not surprising that a liberal comedian would do things like this because uh, you know, no matter how liberal a comedian is, they they're very scared about uh, becoming too sensitive to be funny. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like you say. I do think that part of the problem is that I, just, I and and I think you agree with me that it just wasn't that funny a storyline. Like yeah. I didn't really see what it added ultimately to the show. Uh, there's also the character uh, Dong, uh, yes. which was kind of this extended penis joke, um, yeah. I guess. Uh, it's the it's an Asian character who's introduced uh, as Kimmy's friend. Uh, and, you know, again, we've talked, I've talked a lot about on this podcast about, you know, Asians and representation. Uh, and, you know, in, in some ways it was good to be represented at all. And I don't think that she meant to me by it, but I just didn't feel like his being named Dong really mattered. They just didn't land as jokes for me. I think that there's quite a few instances of diversity in the show, as it were, which is just like not a bunch of white people, right? Mm -hmm. So there's the Native American parents, there's the black gay roommate, there's the Asian male romantic lead. And um, I'm not saying that they did it all perfectly uh, well and that all of the stereotypes were, were ironed out to show a fair representation, but I appreciated the visibility part of it. Like, I think that's was A in the plus column anyway. But and even if some of all uh, some of the things weren't always funny, like perhaps the Native Americans, like parents are like, well, why are they there? The indigenous parents, why are they there? What is their humor? I remember there's this one part where he gives her the his daughter Jane Krakowski, um, the keys to a car, but it turns out not to be a car. And then she calls him an Indian giver. And he's like, I don't understand why giving something to somebody right. and then taking it away is Indian giving. White people invented that. And even though that's not really part of any particular plot of the stories, I find that they have a function of like, it's funny because it's true-ness to them. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated that part of having them in the show. Well, to, I mean, to be sure, I feel like, I mean, I am, there's a bit of like picking nit here. I, I do think that as a whole, the show is actually like one of the most diverse shows. Uh, yeah, that's what's so, uh, yeah. one of the things I like so much mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, for instance, the the roommate 
the gay black roommate, yeah. Titus, uh, is awesome. I think that character is great. And w- so often we see uh, the sort of black gay character, if that if that character does exist, and to be kind of like this palate cleanser, this like, you know, comic relief in bursts and small bursts. But now we have him and he's like one of really one of two main characters on the show. Yeah. Uh, and he and showing that like you can like that. That character is awesome and funny. Uh, I mean, think about like so he was he played Defuan on 30 Rock and he was used that way as the kind of quick comic relief that you never really got to know too mm-hmm. much but he always landed his jokes and it was and you always wanted to see more of it and we're seeing now that we are seeing more of him and he's carrying it in a way um yeah, yeah. i don't I, you know i don't think it's true that you do see that many black gay uh comedians are on mainstream tv i mean certainly like the idea of like the gay re- roommate or gay neighbor has been done but black and gay not done that often and there's the part there's a part in the show where he gets a job as uh, where he has to dress in a scare, as he has to dress as a wolf man for this job that he gets, and the running joke is he gets treated better in his neighborhood dressed as a monster than he does when he's just walking around as a black guy. Yeah. So they, it's the oh, the funny, but it's true because it's true thing comes into play again and I they, this should show does that part really well yeah the show uh, obviously is he's concerned with trying to do a, a little bit something a little bit unexpected with every character mm-hmm. I know that uh, some people in response because everything is a culture war thing now in response to mm-hmm. the complaints about uh, n- uh, the uh, minorities others have complained about the portrayal of um, white midwesterners who are portrayed as uh, as yokels and mm-hmm. uh, boobs. simple but even that uh, um, goes in, uh, to unexpected places. An episode about her reuniting with one of the uh, other women from the bunker, uh, I think, uh, w- went to some places you wouldn't necessarily uh, expect. It was it was an episode about a closeted gay character, and it was uh, it, it uh, what what was more interesting than the idea of the episode was that it went to some places story-wise that I hadn't really seen before uh, without giving too much away about it. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, one thing that's enjoyable about the show as a whole, even when it doesn't, even when jokes don't pay off, they're clearly trying to take the stories in places that you haven't seen on every other sitcom. It's not one of those shows yet where you can predict the ending of every episode based on the first five minutes. Mm-hmm. And right. there is that surreality that sort of serves as a as a shield in a way. I mean, ultimately, I think the the ultimate answer to all of the criticisms about race stuff is the fact that this is not our world, really. I mean, this is, you know, though it is set in New York City, uh, all of Tina Fey's shows have been, you know, very strange, very odd, very not really here, just a reflection of it. I mean, everyone on a sitcom is a stereotype of mm-hmm. some kind. It's, you know, it, it's essentially impossible to do a, a sitcom without stereotyping everyone. And uh, I'm certainly not saying that all stereotypes are equally bad uh, or or that all stereotypes are on uh, or equally um, fair game, but there's no such thing as a sitcom without comedy cliches uh, by the truckload. Yeah, and I don't think that the show's going to solve all of society's problems. I think it's just good that there's versions of it. Why not? Um, I also want to talk to you guys about the fact that uh, Kimmy Schmidt was initially an NBC show. So that's, uh, you know, a network that has traded in the traditional sitcom for a long time uh, that uh, it got sold to Netflix uh, for a for a hefty sum of money and uh, and basically became the show that you could binge watch on Netflix all at once uh, on a weekend, as some all three of us have done. Um, is Was there value to the fact that this was a binge watching show? I, I feel like there's some interesting parallels we can draw here about this traditional sitcom in this strange new form? Well, I think that uh, it, it just shows that a slightly different 
side of what we consider um, the binge-watching culture. Normally, uh, we think of uh, so-called binge-watching as watching a serialized show season by season, um, uh, watching it uh, because we want to find out what happens next. This is what started the binge-watching culture on DVD, uh, and this is what continued it uh, into Netflix with um, you know shows like Lost. And in terms of comedy, Netflix tried to, I think, uh, do something similar with something like its version of Arrested Development, which had uh, every episode uh, connected to every other episode. Uh, so far, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is a bit more of a traditional thing where the episodes may have some story threads continuing, but every episode is mostly a self-contained story that that ends and has many things that will never, ever be mentioned again. The reason it's binge-watchable is not that you want to find out what happens to the character next, but that uh, the episode goes down so light and so easy that you want to see another one. Yes, sitcoms are very good for marathoning, or which is what we used to call binging, because each episode is so light and fluffy that uh, it, it goes down very easy, and uh, you you just um, don't have to invest a lot of yourself in watching it. Yeah, I think it's really good news that it ended up on Netflix instead of NBC because they weren't beholden to advertisers as they may have been if they were on NBC. They could make it dark and, and as weird as they wanted, which they certainly did, um, while still having a mainstream appeal. Now, I'm not a binge watcher. I don't really do that with shows. There's only been two shows that I've ever really been binge watched with any regularity, and it was The Wire in my second and third viewing and Absolutely Fabulous, which is a, a BBC comedy that I'm I'm just really fond of. Now, with the the wire, the first time I watched it, I really had to like pay attention because it's very intricate. But then when I got like the story arc, the second and third, I just barreled through. And then with um, Abfab is just is silly fun and it, it has a lot of those qualities that um, Jamie was mentioning. You don't have to pay attention to it intensely as I did have to do with the wire. And I think that Kimmy Schmidt be now being the third one that I've been binge watched show that I've binge watched has a little bit of both. It is familiar, like it, like Jamie says, it has the classic fish out of water narrative and the characters are all stereotypes, but it's also some surprising because it does have some of the sharpest social commentary in those throwaway jokes, which is a very like 30 rock trick. Mm-hmm. And it keeps you on your toes because you really got to like, you don't want to miss any of that. So it does a good job of um, marrying the two. And we, and we talked about the traditional sitcom style and, and, and one of the traditions of the sitcom is the fact that the character, the main character, doesn't change very much. I mean, sometimes they get into new relationships and they break up with their, you know, lovers and what have you, but they never meaningfully change. And But here, what I thought was very interesting and uh, was that Kimmy Schmidt uh, changes a lot from episode one to episode 13 uh, in a way that I was sort of surprised by. And I think that actually is a benefit to the fact that it is on Netflix. I think that if this was, you know, put uh, put out once a week on NBC, uh, it would be maybe too much, too quick. And to that extent, I actually think that this show worked better for me as a binge watch than, say, House of Cards, which I found extraordinarily boring. I thought, you know, I, I watched that mostly out of the fact that I felt like I needed to. Well, they, I mean, you'll get no argument from me about House of Cards, mm-hmm. but uh, I think, uh, you know, to some extent what we're seeing in... Um, the first season of Kimmy Schmidt and the character is a show finding itself as it goes along, which uh, is very common in the first season of a sitcom. Yeah. Uh, I, it'll be interesting to see in the uh, second season why, where they go with the character and what they keep and what they change based on either the reaction of the public or their own reaction as they uh, went onward. Because while the show is a lot of fun, 
it does feel like a, a show that they could add or subtract, uh, add to or subtract from. For example, like she doesn't necessarily need to keep the same job forever. Um, uh, her roommate doesn't necessarily have to be struggling uh, mm-hmm. the same way forever. They could add new characters. There's a lot of uh, th- places they can take the show, which is one of the, uh, uh, I think, advantages of having kind of a loose premise uh, the way they do, whereas something like 30 Rock, uh, which also took a season to find itself, um, but, you know, pretty much um, had to uh, had to stick to the same place for, uh, and the same characters forever. Well, you can read what Jamie has to say about the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt in the next issue of McLean's or on McLean's.ca next week. You heart the CBC. At least, that's the big push that's running alongside the Mother Corp's recent TV offerings. X Company, a historical drama about a Canadian elite spy agency working to destroy the Nazis in World War II. And Schitt's Creek, a comedy starring Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara about a family who were once fabulously wealthy and now live in a podunk town. They're shows that both just got greenlit for second seasons, and both are high-production works that are clearly responses to that old mean joke about Canadian TV. There's a new CBC show? Is it in focus? They're also part of the CBC's constant effort to make Canadians watch homegrown shows. And so I wanted to start off with just our own personal thoughts on those two shows. Uh, Julia, what did you think of Schitt's Creek? I like Schitt's Creek, and I know that I'm in the minority among the threesome here, but I I think that it's what I like the most about it is that it's not earnest. It's a show about jerks, and that's a new direction for Canadian TV. <laughs> And that's and I I just I'm looking forward to see how it's going to grow. I, it's in its infancy, I know, but I have hope for it. But it's not new among shows in general. I mean, a cynical a cynical view. It's clear that the show, uh, in in being what it is, is kind of this queen of Versailles, uh, you know, moving down into small town wherevers. Uh, it is in this way kind of like Arrested Development, and it's it's clear that Arrested Development is is, is part of what it wants to be. But then shouldn't we then criticize it if, if it wants to be like Arrested Development, shouldn't we criticize it not as a Canadian show but as a show unto itself? Is it good enough to just be new for Canada as a, as a, as a format? I think a comedy series requires a little time to grow, at least eight episodes to find its sea legs. And I think Schitt's Creek is just coming up on that number if they've already not just surpassed it. And even then it has to have potential to have a second season. It's been greenlit for a second season. Parks and Rec, for example, really benefited from the tweaks implemented in its second season and set itself up for the great show that it is now lauded as. And there's um, Armando Inucci's Veep, which Dan Levy, who is Eugene Levy's son, who is the writer of the show, says he was really influenced by. Veep is the American version of the original British show, and it stars uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus as the VP and her bumbling staff. And it had a really limp for season two, but it had good bones. And then by the second season, it had some, got some tightening, even as came to the character development, and it pulled uh, together a much stronger season. Now, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that Levy is Ianucci by any stretch, but I'm saying that we should at least give Shit's Creek a little time to develop before we cut it off at the knees. There was a show that the CBC had in 2011 called Michael Tuesdays and Thursdays that was mm-hmm. kind of considered Canada's Arrested Development. It did not um, do well with the ratings, but it did really well with the critics. And they've just recently announced that they're going to bring it back. And that so maybe that's very good. News. Yeah, you like that show yeah. too. Yeah, me too. It's a show about a, th- a therapist and and a patient, and um, that was a really smart move. So maybe 
maybe Canadian TV is learning. Yeah, and and don't get me wrong, I'm certainly a big believer in giving a TV show, especially a comedy, more than any kind of show, room to breathe to figure out what it wants to be. That first season, it's really hard to judge a first season of any show. It's sort of like judging the first minute of a song. Um, right, but we're really quick to judge a Canadian comedy show because yeah. co- co- Canadian comedy shows, Canadian shows get quick judgment to it. Oh, it's Canadian. It can't be good enough. Just give it a shot. I do like uh, X Company, you know, for what it is because the, you know, I like that kind of story. But again, it's a little, uh, it's it's a little early to make a full judgment. But I think it's hard to separate Canadian TV from the kind of uh, fe- uh, guilt feelings we have over not supporting Canadian TV enough. Uh, so uh, while I, I don't think uh, any Canadian TV show succeeds um, because of guilt, I think if if a Canadian TV show catches on, it's because people really like it. Um, as for um, you know whether a show is as uh, as good as the American shows, uh, it's sometimes uh, it's sometimes honestly hard to say because it's hard to separate. Uh, what we think of as uh, our, uh, uh, you know, indigenous Canadian style of television, uh, from uh, you know, for, from an idea of what the standards of television should be. Are we say when we say a show is too Canadian, are we saying it's not good enough, or are we just saying we do things differently from the Americans? And uh, that's not always an easy answer. Right. So picking up what you were saying, Jamie, I mean, on, on Thursday, the CRTC, that's Canada's broadcast regulator, uh, it announced that it was going to change the rules around the blocks of Canadian-made TV that's mandated to be on air. They announced that it was going to be, quote, substantially reducing the number of hours each day, uh, but with half of the primetime evening schedule earmarked for Canadian programs, with the idea being to encourage broadcasters to focus spending on quality. Um, so I guess the question is, if we're reducing the quantity of hours that we have to have of Canadian content, I mean... Do we really think that it's going to produce higher quality shows? I don't think there's any magic bullet, but I think that two things to really consider is that we live beside the country with the largest entertainment economy in the world, and they speak the same language as we do. They pay better, and fame there is worldwide fame. And just for example, CBC Schitt's Creek um, would never get made in the U.S. Uh, just being Eugene Levy's son does, doesn't mean anything there. And to America, Eugene Levy is just the dad of the guy who humped the pie in American Pie. Um, but also, it's uh, American networks, they just they just try more things. They often gr- greenlight more series than they have room for on their schedules because they are assuming that they will be canceling some even before they air and because if they just figure they're not going to be strong enough to stay. And you get the sense that everything's got to be the great white hope here in Canadian television mm-hmm. because resources are so scarce. And it's like they're really betting the farm every time, in a sense. And I think that that will only increase with the new... CRTC relaxation and they the CRTC say that they want to show producers to focus on quality unfettered by the CanCon restrictions but what they should really emphasize to them is that they shouldn't be afraid to fail like just make stuff American TV is it's kind of like Babe Ruth you know one year Babe Ruth had the most home runs but he also had the most strikeouts too and I think that's they should focus on that uh, actually, just a just a quick note that they do uh, air Schitt's Creek on, in America on the. I wonder but, how well it does there. Yeah, not not great. It's on the little channel that used to be TV Guide Pop, channel, right? Yeah, it used to be TV Guide channel, so not not great. But no, I, I think you're you're right on. I think that Canadian uh, content does struggle in the face of 
uh, America, which is, I think there's no question that it is the world's pop culture center. Bell Media's president, Kevin Kroll, actually last week called for the CRTC to stop having U.S. uh, channels air on uh, on our airwaves. And I was surprised by that, but mostly because I didn't realize just just the degree to which we are in such a unique position. So Canada, we are the only country that allows American networks to retransmit their content without any limits on our TVs just for free. So that's why, you know, we have ABC, we have CBC, NBC, Fox and PBS. They're all on our TVs, uh, on our TV screens, and they're not paying anything to do that. And and that you know that came from years and years ago. Uh, the you know the Canada sort of wanted this people to join up with their cable content, and having American channels made it more desirable. But now that it's there, I mean shows shows Canadian shows are just wilting. I think in the face of what we see as this great you know monopoly of pop culture when as you say in reality there's a ton of bad american shows that we just don't hear about i don't think that's necessarily a handicap though having too many american channels and i think the 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 bell guy he's you know it's it's a, it's competition i think he thinks that if there are less less channels equals higher concentration of eyeballs on canadian uh ch- channels and networks which will boost ratings and and which will then boost advertising dollars but i don't i don't know that that's the right equivalency. Like, there's still a creative brain drain going on, mm-hmm. yep. and I can't solve that. I mean, yeah, there, there is an ideal world where this this relaxation, I think, does mean that we're going to put more money into fewer shows that are just great. But the, I mean, talk to anyone in Canadian TV, and it's not like there's this land of milk and honey. Right. I mean, now it's just a land of maybe we got a few. So more I'm just going to tie it up with a bow and be like, "Ta-da, we did it for yeah, you guys." That's right. So I now think make yeah, your, all the it's all the very hits. hard to manufacture quality on demand. Some American right. networks can sort of do it, but uh, they uh, they've had they took them a long time to get to that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, without a uh, thriving industry, without people working consistently, without the willingness to take a lot of chances and make a lot of crap. Uh, you can't really uh, get to the point where you, know, you can just make good stuff uh, by, by putting more money into it. Yeah. Uh, where are you going to get the people to make it? Where are you right. going to get the, the training? Where are the where, Where's the experience going to come from? If you move to America, you yeah. can't work consistently here even now. Imagine how hard it'll be to find consistent work here uh, You know, when there are fewer shows. I think consumers need to recognize that it's part of our problem, too. I mean, we have to want to see Canadian content, too. And I think there is a lack of recognition of the fact that these things do move in cycles. I mean, to on to your point, AMC, for instance, we, we think of AMC and they have really, as like a channel that's really figured it out, they had they made Breaking Bad and they made they made Mad Men. These are two of the great shows of our time. But AMC right now, I mean, Mad Men's about to end and Breaking Bad's been over and they have no idea how to make a new show. But I guess we don't really think about those things in here in Canada. Canadian content needs to come from somewhere. And but they have a big creative pool to pull from. Sure, yes. And, and, and by virtue they of the country that they're in. everything that was what they've got. They do. They can spin off those shows. Um, and not to say that in Canada we don't. I mean, there's kids in the hall projects all the time, right? Actually, a new one's coming up. Bruce McCullough's got a show coming through with CBC this year, I think. I think it's at least good that we take, you know, as with Schitt's Creek, it's, I think it's good that we take care of our beloved old comedians like with yeah. Wayne and Sch- I grew up with Wayne and Schuster, and I don't care how old they got. I was proud to keep them working. <laughs> This week, Sam Simon, co-creator of The Simpsons, died after a battle with cancer. And though he left the show in 1993, he is widely considered a major force in shaping the bones of the show. So lucky for our listeners, we have not one but two resident Simpson nerds in our office, nay, in this very studio. So guys, why should we care about the legacy of Sam Simon? Jamie? 
Well, Sam Simon is credited uh, as one of the three developers of The Simpsons. Uh, creator Matt Groening, who created the family uh, on the Tracy Ullman show, James L. Brooks, who was the you know one of the most powerful producers in Hollywood and uh, owner of the show's production company, and um, and Simon, who was a man who had uh, written for Brooks on shows like Taxi. And uh, Simon was uh, placed in charge of the uh, series as the showrunner, the man uh, in charge of hiring the writing staff, putting the show together. And uh, in addition to hiring the writing staff, which uh, became one of the most influential and greatest um, writing teams uh, of that era, uh, he also uh, is credited with helping to turn the the uh, short cartoons where you never saw many people besides the family uh, into this series where you saw the entire town of Springfield populated by all these characters. So the whole world of Springfield is not necessarily his creation, but something that Simon helped to uh, develop and uh, nurture and grow during his four years on the show. So uh, in, in a sense, while um, Groening is the creator of The Simpsons, Simon is the man behind the world of Springfield. Mm-hmm. And, and in a way, uh, what he did is you know, more important than just having called that writing room, you know, a writing room that many agree is perhaps the the greatest writer's room uh, in, in the last like 25, 30 years. Uh, but also, you know, he created this this mentality in the room that, you know, all those writers kept making uh, subversive, smart stuff that really I mean, that really was the hallmark of Sam Simon's work. Uh, and they kept doing that together they didn't leave after he left they kept doing that together for years after yes um so he you know in a way created the culture it wasn't just that he created springfield it was it was more that you know established that culture yeah um and and on top of that you know i think it's important to note that sam simon also came up with some of uh the simpsons like really early hallmark hits uh for one there was the 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 raven treehouse of horror uh i think that's one of the the i think that's one of the best early treehouse of horror i think <laughs> jamie you and i, I disagree I, I, I think there are just too many raven parodies i mean i, I just <laughs> like uh, you. you know, I, I I get it. There was a midnight dreary. He was weak and weary. Okay. <laughs> Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning. Soon again I heard a tapping, something louder than before. Surely, ah! said I. Surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what their ad is and this mystery explore. Open here I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady, perched above my chamber door. He also did The Land of Chocolate, which yeah. is probably one of my most favorite of all The Simpsons. Mmm, The Land of Chocolate. Yeah, and also he was the one who pitched the softball episode as someone who's a huge baseball fan and a Simpsons fan. That remains, you know, just in, I think, yeah. a lot of people's top ten episodes. So he's the reason we have yes. that song, Talking Softball. We're talking softball, from Maine to San Diego, talking softball, Manningly and Conseco. And he um, helped form the characters of Mr. Burns. Excellent. Chief Wiggum. Wiggum. Which are 
I mean, essential mm-hmm. to Springfield. Yeah. Um, and he's also the the man responsible for the Flame and Moe's episode. This is this was a pretty important episode for a number of reasons. Uh, one, that it was hilarious and it brought in Aerosmith, but also because it kind of was a reflection of the, the acrimony that actually led to Sam Simon uh, leaving. So what happened is in the episode, uh, of course, is that Homer comes up with this great cough syrup-based drink uh, that, you know, takes off and makes uh, his bartender, Moe, uh, a huge success. He becomes very wealthy, wealthy beyond his dream, but uh, Moe does not credit uh, Homer, uh, he calls it the Flaming Mo, uh, and his bar takes off and becomes a great uh, Cheers reference. But oh, uh, they did the Cheers parody song. Yeah, that's Beaut. right. But yeah, I mean, like this was this is a lot about the acrimony that he felt with uh, Matt Groening, right, Jamie? Well, there's, uh, I mean, you can't really prove that it's uh, about an allegory, but right. certainly some people have taken the episode that way, and certainly, uh, unlike most uh, successful shows where you never really hear about behind the scenes conflicts, the the fact that uh, Sam Simon and Matt Groening did not get along is, I think, fairly well known and uh, fairly well established. Uh, it's not really that surprising uh, because, of course, uh, they had different goals and different priorities. Uh, Graining was, uh, you know, as the creator of the family, and uh, but as an inexperienced writer and a cartoonist, he didn't really have much power in the uh, writers' room. And the writers, having been hired by Sam Simon, uh, tended to. Um, feel in some cases that he wasn't getting enough credit. Uh, certainly a couple of writers at the time seemed to uh, discuss graining as if he was hogging the credit and uh, Simon wasn't getting enough. And uh, so a lot of these things kind of bubbled up into uh, the uh, you know public consciousness. Sam Simon was not an easy man to get along with, uh, which is one of the reasons uh, he left Brooks's company and severed all ties with the company and the show after four years. He was given a, a continuing executive producer credit, but he never worked on the show again. And the and so uh, having built the show, he left and um, created some other shows, directed a lot of episodes of things like the Drew Carey Show. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think um, for sure the first four seasons of The Simpsons will remain his greatest legacy. And it, it really is kind of this tragedy that he he did die uh, or got was diagnosed with with cancer uh, so early in his life and, and did indeed die at, uh, you know, this week, I guess, at the age of 59, which is way too young. But on the other hand, uh, he, uh, you know, he he's clearly enjoyed uh, his life and he made a lot of money from The Simpsons mm-hmm. and did a lot of philanthropy uh, with uh, with the money he made, and uh, I think seemed to be a guy who was uh, enjoying his semi retirement and uh, and knew that he had uh, helped make something very special. And I think what's important when we talk about his legacy is it gives us an opportunity to remember what The Simpsons used to be. I mean, The Simpsons has, for all of its uh, all of its pleasures, as this great cultural touchstone. A lot of people agree that you know sort of the later seasons just aren't what it used to be. And and in a way, it's this co- this conversation about burning bright rather than burning long. You know, The Simpsons being this series that many feel has overstayed its welcome. Um, you know, Sam Simon gives us this opportunity to remember what it sort of those those golden years. What not just those you know first four seasons, but also you know the first ten, I guess. Well, The Simpsons uh, was always uh, made on the basis that uh, it, it it was taking risks and wasn't going to last that long. One of the things uh, Graining reportedly did not like about Simon is that he, uh, as a veteran sitcom writer, he didn't really expect the show to last. 
and uh, he said, we're, we're 13 and out. We're going to do 13 episodes <laughs> and then get canceled. And uh, you, um, uh, Granny may have thought he wasn't taking the show seriously enough, but in fact, that was a major component to the show's success in that uh, doing this crazy thing, an animated primetime series that which hadn't been successful since the Flintstones. The, he and the writers just uh, felt free to do whatever they wanted, take any chance they wanted, and um, and do things that no one had ever seen on a mainstream uh, television series before. And They weren't uh, afraid to fail. Exactly. Right? Because exactly. they thought they already had. Exactly. <laughs> they, and these are, you know, this is... See, was good a, for creativity. Shit's exactly. creaky listening. This was a non-union show with non-union uh, you know, right. writers who weren't uh, working union, so they, they couldn't get the top writers. They got writers who were either inexperienced or a little bit down and out and, do, you know, w- would try anything. Mm-hmm. And the thing about uh, The Simpsons is you can argue when it started to lose its touch. You can argue if the uh, recent episodes are as good, but the fact is The Simpsons is now establishment. It, it, it's uh, totally uh, mainstream. and yeah. It's uh, got an amusement yeah. park. Exactly. It's, it's, it's a reliable product. Yeah. Well, we raise our flame and mose to you, Sam. So say we all. <laughs> well, that's it for this week. Find new episodes every Friday at McLean's.ca and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Beyond Pod. Leave us a rating or a comment on iTunes or drop us a comment on the site. If you like this, make sure to check out our politics podcast on The Hill. You can also hear some of our columnists read their work at McLean's Voices. Both of those are on iTunes and Stitcher. Our theme song is by Young Clancy. You can follow Jamie Weinman on Twitter at WeinmanJ. You can follow Julia at Julia Del J and me at Adrian K. Lee. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.